0: We have begun, finally, in earnest to pursue a study of those vital and historical Baptist distinctives, those things which we hold most emphatically as our righteous heritage and our staid convictions. After a few lectures of general introduction, we set about to take up specifically first this foundational distinctive, the doctrine of the sole authority of the scriptures in all matters of faith and practice. And to that end, we took up some study in fundamental definitions and then we took up the comprehensive wording of our own baptist confession of faith 1689 and next we took up some of the writings of great baptist giants in our past we quoted from Boyce, Jeremiah Jeter, William Crowell, John Gill, and others. Then, to help us in our apologetic defenses, Luke brought us a very helpful lecture three or so weeks ago. And then finally, Brother Gormley brought us a glorious lecture On that blessed martyr, that martyr and referenced others, martyrs to this doctrine. More, much, much more could be said on this foundational doctrine of the soul an entire sufficiency of the scriptures. And many volumes have been written in ages past, to which we heartily recommend your attention. But for the purposes of this class, there I call it survey class, we will not dwell here much longer. Frankly, as with any other cardinal doctrine held among us, I am more than ever convinced that we need go no further and can seek no better expressions for our doctrine than the ever precise wording of our Baptist confession. We are conscious, most of the men, and I assume the wives through their husbands, are conscious of some measure of a raging controversy that is being engaged in among fellows that we know all of which could have been avoided had they been content to rely on the simple wording of our well established Baptist confession of faith and I am of the strong conviction that we need as I said and I quote myself we need go no further and can seek no better expressions for our doctrine than the ever-precise wording of our Baptist confession. faith. Now, of course, much, much, much more can be said, but as to definitions and convictions, we need go no further. It is over this doctrine, that is, the sole sufficiency of the Scriptures, that wars have been waged. Against us in every age and in every clime. I wanted to bring to your attention today a way of maybe bringing close to an end of our discussion of this particular Baptist distinctive. I wanted to bring to your attention a couple of those. Wars that have been waged against us as Baptists, even in, not in ancient history, but in more modern history. I would point you first, of course, to that now quite famous theological war that was engaged in by Spurgeon, came to be known, of course, as The Downgrade Controversy. I printed off just a simple part of a simple article uh, that I took from online entitled What Was The Downgrade Controversy Actually All About? Very simple, brief, but to the point article written here. And... Uh, i read you just these words. Spurgeon said, and this is quoting him, For my part, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. That was his testimony regarding this downgrade controversy that was tearing him apart and tearing Baptists apart in his, in his day. The author says, Spurgeon spoke these fatal words at the conclusion of his presidential address at the annual college conference, a gathering of current and former students of his pastor's college. Let me give you the quote again. Now that you know the context, he said, For my part, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next fifty years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. He voiced these words in the midst of the greatest conflict of his life, often referred to as the downgrade controversy. He was tired discouraged, and disillusioned, yet also calm, resolute, and certain. He had made his stand for the truth, and he felt sure he could endure whatever opposition would come, confident in the knowledge that he had his Lord's approval. Most people familiar with Spurgeon's story have at least a working knowledge of the downgrade controversy, which in many ways defined the final years of Spurgeon's life. But if you ask people to identify the exact issues that were under debate, few would be able to name them. So what was the downgrade controversy all about after all? In the famous controversy, Spurgeon had four Main grievances with the men of his denomination. That is the Baptist Union. He summarized them in one of the early articles that precipitated this controversy. Quote, we cannot hold to the inspiration of the word of God and reject it. We cannot believe in the atonement and deny. We cannot recognize the punishment of the impenitent and yet indulge this larger hope. One way or the other, we must go. Decision is the virtue of the hour. And so, the writer of this article says, Here we see that Spurgeon was concerned that some within the denomination were either flirting with or in some cases... Openly promoting the following errors, number one error, number one error, the denial of the infallibility of the scriptures. The second, of course, was the denial of the necessity and substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement. Third was the denial of existence and eternality of hell. And the fourth was the affirmation of universalism. Whatever one may notice about the above list, at least two things should stand out. First, that all four of these issues are doctrinal issues. Second, not only are they doctrinal, but they are matters of basic Christian orthodoxy of the first importance and have to do with doctrines that have been universally affirmed by the church throughout its history. The infallibility of the scripture. Necessity and, sub- and substitutionary nature of the atonement, the existence of an eternal hell, the doctrine of divine wrath for all those who do not possess saving faith in Christ is as old as Christianity itself. To deny them any one of them is to deny some of the most basic tenets of the Christian faith. In other words, Spurgeon's stand in the downgrade controversy, simply put, was about defending matters of basic Christian orthodoxy. These were the only issues that would lead him to withdraw from his own denomination in the autumn of 1887. Historical testimony that the infallibility of Scripture has been a point of central focus and war, not only between Baptists and their enemies, but sometimes within the ranks of even those called Baptists. It was, and I don't think I've read it in other places by other men, I don't think it is an overstatement to say that this downgrade controversy was the single feature that overwhelmingly characterized the latter years of his life and ministry. Overwhelmed with this controversy, men came to deny the infallibility and therefore the sufficiency of the scriptures, secondly, as a second example, I'm just giving you examples uh, in more more in modern history of the importance and the battles that have been fought over these truths. Second illustration would be found. Somewhere along the 1950s and 60s, in what remains the largest single denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Convention, there was a war of gigantic proportions raging among, again, among Baptists over this doctrine. Whole books were written and whole schools were founded over this doctrine. Names like Dr. Lee Robertson, Dr. Bob Jones, Dr. R.G. Lee, Dr. Harold Seidler. These are names. These are in some cases, whole schools and training institutions that were founded over the controversy over this doctrine. The Southern Baptist Convention had brought, seen the, seen the uh, rise and proliferation of theological liberals. Who deny the inspiration of scripture. And therefore the sufficiency. Baptists have historically. Held this torch high. Baptists have historically. Held this torch. The sufficiency of the scripture high. Even under the fire of every other. Ecclesiastical canon. In every age. This Bible. Is the Word of God, the very words of God, the complete Word of God, and nothing else is worthy our obedience. Now I emphasize that because I personally came from a denomination called Baptist where other things were substituted as authoritative. Men supposed themselves to have received some extra-biblical insight, light, or even in some cases, voice from God. I made it a rule when I came to see the truth of this doctrine, rightly. I made it a rule in my life, listening to other men, that when a man says, the Lord said to me, or the Lord told me, I just put a pause right there. The Lord told me. Whatever comes out of his mouth next, after that, Better come straight from this book, because if it doesn't, then you're claiming divine inspiration, because the Lord hasn't told you anything that's not in the lids of this Bible period the sole sufficiency of the scriptures, so that these men in that era and and those dates are not Fixed, But but generally, the 50s and 60s, this controversy was really heating up and raging among the SBC. It was shortly after that that I came along and was thrown into the middle of it. But it was during that period of time that men who were defending the scriptures the authority of the Scriptures, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, and even the inspiration of the Scriptures. It was during that period of time that great men were raised up. I wanted to share with you one of those great men was Dr. R.G. Lee, Robert G. Lee. I suppose it would be safe for me to read to you from this book because Brother John actually gave me this book. So I suppose it will be approved for my reading for you. But Dr. R.G. Lee was among those men who were right in the middle of this raging controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention in his day. And he was one of those uh stalwart Trojans who was standing against the tide of liberalism in defense of the scriptures. It was in 1948 that Broadman Press published this book which were sermons of his. And then the first sermon, the first sermon in this book is entitled, Remembering the Words of Jesus. He took his text from Luke chapter 24 and verse 8, which says, And they remembered his words. What a great text to take for a sermon. Just that, just that and they remembered his words. Dr. Lee taking that and being as he was in the midst of this fiery trial of controversy among his peers, among many other things, he preached this. He spoke about the wonder of his words. He said, what we ask, what is a violent The flower, the the violet. And the poet answers, "A A violet is a piece of perfumed floral velvet plus the solar system. We ask, what is a lump of coal? And the scientist answers, A clot of the sun's blood turned black. We ask, what is a blade of grass? And the mystic says, A blade of grass is an emerald harp string on which the bugling spring wind plays a resurrection melody. We ask what is spring and somebody answers the time when cosmic tides break into billows of blossoms. We ask what is a thunderstorm and a child wisely answers God at his organ. We ask, what is the universe? And one answers, a place in which a lot of love is better than much money. We ask, what is love? And the Bible says, God is love. And another says, the power which fertilizes every faculty, unifies all noble ideas, harmonizes all true work and workers, sweetens the speech of all tongues, fulfills all noble prophecies, explains All martyrdom transfigures all hopes. And in all these things it never fails. But then we ask, what is a word? And before we answer, we think of 2,796 languages in the world in 1948. We think of the fact that 700,000 is approximately the number of English words. And the fact that it takes the average child several years to learn 1,000 words. Or some men who have from 60,000 to 30,000 words at their command. We think of monosyllabic words and multisyllabic words or simple words and profound words of the truth that language is the Rubicon which no animal ever crossed. i never heard that. That's beautiful. Language is the Rubicon which no animal has ever crossed. But the dictionary says that, it is, that a word is quote an articulate sound or combination of sounds expressing an idea a constituent part of a sentence. And thinking of the wonder of words, Adelaide Proctor said, I've known one word to hang starlight or a dreary waste of years, and it only shone the brighter, looked at through the mist of tears. Wonderful the words of the lisping babe, Of gladsome childhood, of vigorous and jubilant youth, and mumbling old age. Wonderful the words that come from the orator's mouth, like flights of golden arrows. Wonderful the words that come from the writer's pen, like a golden pollen falling from the streams of shaken lilies. Wonderful the words that come from the singer's lips, building vocal palaces of melody and song. Many times we've been taught that bodies die but words live. When in recent years Mars walked with bloody boots across the world and he's talking, of course, Dr. Lee, just a master of words and stringing them together. He's describing right here World War II. He said when in recent years Mars walked with bloody boots across the world and around the world, tying crape to millions of doorknobs, covering the earth with the brains and blood and bones of slaughtered millions. It was in a large part the result of the historical words of one man, Adolf Hitler. Words which brought about the Third Reich. We know that words have made possible the freedom of man, made beautiful many unknown things. Words tell of love between men and women. Words speak of God, of worship, of hatred, of misery, of death. Words can, tell, can call for the uplifting of the world as did the words of Christ. Words can call for the destruction of nations as did the words of Hitler. Because of this use of words, Patrick Henry was called the tongue of the revolution. Because of his use of words, this was said of Henry Clay, quote, he had the faculty of crowding as by some hydrostatic pressure of oratory, an amazing weight of expression on the backbone of a single word. Because of his use of words, this was said of Daniel Webster, quote, his words are a song of triumph from the lips of one whose feet were on the beautiful mountains of the promised land. Because of his words, this was what a newspaper said about Henry Grady. Quote, he managed in 20 minutes to bathe two antagonistic sections into fraternal light. Hmm. Jack Cofed recently wrote, Written words are the ones that hold the history, the beauty, the courage and devotion of the past. They tell the tale and point the finger, but the words we speak to each other can be all or the sand in the fears of our existence. If they are words of brotherhood and understanding, the sun shines. If they are words of hatred and distrust, the cold wind blows and the skies are dark. But oh, says Dr. Lee, oh, the wonder. Of the words of Jesus, no man spake as he spake. He testifies then that a woeful sense of inadequacy oppresses the mind of any man who attempts with words to proclaim the dignity of Christ. Well, that said it all, didn't it? A woeful sense of inadequacy oppresses the mind of any man who attempts with words to proclaim the dignity of the person of Christ. The condescension of his grace, the wonders of his love, the efficacy of his suffering, The prevalence of his intercession. The inability to save, the ability to save unto the uttermost those that come to God by him. What precious words. He who made the law was made under the law. He who was clothed with honor and majesty was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He who made woman was made of woman. He who was in the form of God was found in the fashion of a man. And as a man, divine omnipotence moved in his arm. Divine wisdom was cradled in his brain. Divine love throbbed in his heart. Divine compassion glistened in his eyes. Divine grace poured from his lips. Divine mercy wrought in human hands. Divine holiness was manifested in human walk. Divine fullness dwelt in his body, but nothing surpassed. His words. Dr. Lee said turn the microscope upon the words of Jesus. Turn your microscope to the words of Jesus. The severest ordeal has not discredited them. Remember now he's preaching right in the middle of this controversy. This great controversy about the Inerrancy of the scripture, verbal inspiration. He said the severest ordeal has not discredited them. Scientists celebrate the skill of the Belgian chemist who eliminated from his chemicals every trace of that pervasive element, sodium, so thoroughly that even its spectroscopic detection was impossible. But far more wonderful of the words of Jesus which for boldness of conception, for grandeur of character, for valiant, for, uh, uh, for valiance claim the sovereignty of the world. Words which are diamonds in which there is no flaw. Rivers whose sands are gold, whose depths glass the purity of the depths, glass the purity of the heavens, and in which is no trace of mud. Choirs in which there is no voice lifted in antithesis, to the wisdom that's far above, declaration in which there are no trace of error or injustice, gardens in which are no weeds mixed with the flowers. And from him who illustrated in his daily life every doctrine of his heavenly mind, we have this assurance, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Every word Jesus spoke has been weighed and analyzed. 2,000 years they've been the object of intense analysis. They've been the subject of unparalleled investigations. His words have been torn into analytical pieces and thrust often into the laboratory of critical chemistry. They've been submitted to transcendent cleverness, tested thoroughly, as a base, combination, compound, parts, and even now are the object of iniquitous inspection. But has one accent been discovered as wrong? Has one emphasis been erroneous? Is one sentence or one knee, one word in need of change? Can all men, searching, scrutinizing, sifting, find a single thought that ought to be reversed or any statement that needs to be recalled? Absolutely not. Well, what a great defense. What a powerful preaching on this matter of the absolute sovereignty of the Word of God. Always, never without a great story in his sermons. Dr. Lee said that a soldier of the old Grand Army of the Republic wrote a letter to the famous Henry Ward Beecher, pastor of Plymouth Church, requesting a copy of a prayer which the preacher had delivered a short time before. He's talking about words now. This man wrote and asked for a copy of the sermon of the prayer that he prayed. (laughs) The colorful reply is still in the archives to this day. Dated July the 11th, 1878. He responds to General Barnum, the Grand Marshal, with these words you request me to send you my prayer made on Decoration Day evening. If you will send me the notes of the aureole that whistled from the top of my trees last June, or the iridescent globes that came in by millions on the last wave that rolled on the beach yesterday, or a segment of the rainbow from last week, or perfume of the first violet that bloomed in May, I will also send you the prayer that rose to my lips with the occasion and left me forever. I hope it went heaven and was registered, in which case the only record of it will be found in heaven. Yours truly, Henry Ward Beecher. Just so, says Dr. Lee, we find it impossible with words to describe the words of Jesus. For his words are like warm hands placed upon practical life. All the truths uttered in any and every realm find their rootage in the words Jesus. Thus, song of the preaching of a master of words. And I'll read you that only to remind you he's preaching in the midst of a war on this Baptist doctrine. A war against the inspired word of God. Oh yes, much more could be said, but I will arrest our studies here with this resolute conviction that this Bible is the only rule for faith and practice. That is a Baptist distinctive unique. And it is a distinctive upon which we have no room for compromise. I conclude with words I have read to you before, but i read it again. I conclude with the words of Carl when he said this. The men who wrote the scriptures were so instructed, moved, guided, and restrained by the Spirit of God that they recorded truly and correctly those things which ought to be recorded, and nothing more free from the least error or omission. The inspired writers wrote the very words and all the words which God intended they should write in the sacred scriptures and no others. They ought therefore to be received as the perfect, infallible words of God to be interpreted according to the laws of language and every truth which they reveal, every doctrine they teach, every positive institution they enjoin, every duty which they inculcate, ought to be implicitly believed and obeyed. Now that's an expanded way of saying what I've said very briefly that the scriptures are the sole rule for faith and practice. Ought to be. He says they ought to be. Every truth they reveal, every doctrine they teach, every institution they enjoin, every duty they inculcate ought to be implicitly believed and obeyed. The sole sufficiency of the scriptures any questions or further comments on this Baptist distinctive
1: And so definitely, there and in fact, I don't want to declare the word that is not in that religion. We'll go ahead and get along with all those preparatory warnings and defenses that are required for the salt of the Pontian. That's an interesting one. Of it is an annual law. Doesn't just which he had the authority to do anything by say, make a series of blanket statements, but he declared that he revealed to us as much yields we have to have. And gave us also a very concise instructions, and in directions, and comfort related to the support of defense. Yeah, wholesome doctor.
0: wholesome doctor. Well, once you settle the conviction that this Bible is the supreme and sole rule for your life, that, that eliminates a whole lot of other problems. And complications. Because there is nothing else to which you need to turn in whatever's life, whatever life brings you. There is nowhere else you need to turn but here. Who was it that I quoted for you recently said, That this, here, here, is a pool shallow enough for the infant to paddle or for
1: the elephant to swim.